The purpose of the Lenten season, a 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter, is to prepare our hearts for all that Jesus is and came to do and what we focus on when we get to Good Friday and Easter. And um, we began this season, this past Wednesday, with really fantastic Ash Wednesday services. We had a whole a bunch of people for 7 o'clock in the morning and 7 o'clock at night on a Wednesday, uh, and uh, very meaningful services. In fact, I think that's becoming one of my favorite things here at TLCC during the year. And a focus on repentance and a focus on the, on the power of Jesus through the cross to uh, help us live the lives that he meant for us to live. Hey, if we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. I'm so glad that you're here and particularly glad that you're here for the launch of this season. And so I'm going to teach for about 40 minutes or so, and then we're going to close our time today by coming around the Lord's table for communion and focusing our attention on Jesus. It's so good to see uh, all of you here today. And by the way, uh, if Priscilla with the yoga mat, who mysteriously paid for my breakfast yesterday, is here, please, first of all, thank you. You made my morning and said nice things evidently about me to the person who owned the restaurant. Thank you. And uh, uh, I'd love to meet you and be able to say thank you. So Priscilla, you know who you are. Say hi to me after service today, okay? All right, so um, Dr. Paul Brand uh, is a well-known doctor and, and tremendous writer and thinker. He told a story in his beautiful book, In His Image, about how that one day a woman came to see him at his medical practice complaining of problems in her extremities. In particular, she said that she was having trouble holding on to things and that this has been going on for a while, but it had been getting worse. And uh, she said she finally decided to come and see him when she dropped two pieces of precious china that week because she just couldn't grasp it properly. Well, as Dr. Brand began to examine her, he found a tumor that was growing uh, in her upper chest, inner neck, constricting her windpipe, and he proceeded in the, the next few weeks to surgically remove that tumor. Well, when she came to see him several weeks after the surgery, which was successful for her post uh, surgical meeting, she bounded into his office with tremendous excitement and said, Dr. Brand, I can breathe. I can breathe. And he said, you didn't say anything to me about not being able to breathe. To which she said, I didn't know that I couldn't breathe. The point is, the problem wasn't in her ability to grasp a thing. The problem was in here. And and he knew that to treat this symptom, he had to get at the root issue. And the root issue is she had an inability because of this tumor to breathe. From that, I want to make a simple point, I think. Sometimes what we focus on isn't really what we need. And if we're not careful, we can focus our attention and effort on symptoms but not the underlying and actual issue 
of life. Perhaps, for instance, we're having a problem in a relationship or we're losing the battle with some particular temptation or aren't realizing our potential in some way. So we focus on that. But we don't realize that the real issue is more fundamental and essential to living life in all of its fullness. I submit to you that underlying every issue in our lives is our connection to the source of life, or said more succinctly, I believe that the most important thing we can focus on is our relationship with God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That is my thesis statement for today and for the next seven weeks. I submit to you that oft time we think the issue is this, when really the issue is this. It's not the problem out there, it's the issue in our spirit. We don't have because we don't have what we want out there because we're not breathing fully in the life of God. Now, we can apply this truth to the idea of vision which we've been talking about in recent weeks. We've been discussing how we want to have clarity in our lives, to have a spirit-revealed vision of our future. But sometimes we grasp for our future. We try to get a grip on possibility. We try to diagnose and fix some problem in a way that actually disconnects us from our God-inspired dreams. or, Or I should say it disconnects us from the source of our God-inspired dreams. The source of our God-inspired dreams is God. And sometimes we're going after the dream and we do it in a way that disconnects us from what really is giving us the power to achieve what we're trying to achieve. We must never forget that the source of life in all of its fullness that Jesus promised, as we discuss so often here, the source of life in all of its fullness that Jesus promised is Jesus. The secret to more and better life than we ever dreamed is to know Jesus more and more. To see and grasp a God-dreamed vision for our future, we must see and know Jesus more. And so I'm encouraging us to focus on the most important thing and understand that sometimes the things we actually focus on keep us from being connected to the very source of all we need to live successful lives in every way. And there's a great passage in uh, the Gospel of Luke that tells us a story that's pretty well known about how Jesus visited the home of two sisters, Mary and Martha, and presumably then their brother Lazarus. Luke 10.38 tells us, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And then Jesus said in a very well-known saying of Jesus, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things 
are needed, or indeed only one, Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So it's a simple story. Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha. He's sitting in a room. He's evidently, one would assume from what we know about how teachers taught and rabbis rabbied at, during the first century, he was sitting in a room where typically only the men would sit and only the disciples would sit to listen in order to learn the thoughts of the rabbi and one would follow a rabbi, a disciple would follow a rabbi to such an extent that they actually could imitate them mimic and uh, their their intonations and quote them word for word this is probably what was going on what's indicated by Jesus sitting in this room and Mary a woman who typically at that point in history would have been in the other room making dinner for all the guys Mary is sitting as a student of a rabbi just as the men are focused on Jesus hearing his thoughts hearing his words there are a lot of implications about that that I actually write about in my book the hospital believer that are not important to now but it was amazing that that this woman was sitting in that room and that 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 she had that kind of a, a relationship with Jesus as if she's in training to be a rabbi it was unheard of at that time but the point today is that Martha was distracted, we're told, by all kinds of things. And Jesus simply said to Martha, Martha, you're worried, you're distracted, you have lots of things that you're, you're trying to do here, but Mary has chosen the most needed thing, and I'm not going to take that away from her. It is so important in, in the busyness of our life in our grasping for this and that, not to forget the very root, the very issue, the very fundamental, the very essential reality that out here is influenced by what's in here and we can't lose focus on the most important thing. See, it wasn't that what Martha was doing wasn't important or even necessary. It was just that it wasn't the most needed thing. We must make certain that in our attempt to grasp life that we do not get disconnected from the source of life. So during this Lenten season, this 40-day period that began on Ash Wednesday that will end on Easter Sunday, I want us to use this season to focus our attention on what is most needed in every one of our lives, to focus our attention fully on Jesus, who he is, what he did for humanity, and to prepare our hearts for all that he wants to do in and for us. So let's start like this. We can grow in knowing Jesus and we can grow into experiencing the life in all of its fullness that Jesus promised. I want to talk about spiritual growth for a few minutes. And then I'm going to close by beginning what we're going to do over the next seven weeks, which is offering a practical next step to grow in knowing Jesus and to experiencing more and more the more and better life that Jesus promised. The fact is that we can grow in our life with God. Now in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, there are two kinds of life that are mentioned. In other words, 
There are two Greek words which are translated life, and one is the word bios. Bios has to do with the physical created life. Bios has to do with the physical created life. And then there's zoe. Zoe is the spiritual, eternal life. Um, The fact is that Jesus came to bring us zoe life. He came to animate our bios with zoe, if you please. Uh, W.E. Vines, in his his marvelous uh, dictionary of biblical words, defines zoe uh, like this. He says zoe has to do with life as a principle, life in the absolute sense, life as God has it, that which the Father has in himself and which he gave to the incarnate Son, Jesus, to have in himself and which the Son manifested in the world. Jesus came to bring us life, the very source of life, life as God has it in himself. Now, we see this in John's gospel when he's introducing Jesus to the world and he says about Jesus, in him was life, Zoe, and that life, Zoe, was the light of all mankind. Now, see, as 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 physical created beings, as, as bios beings, we can breathe in the oxygen around us. But when we have zoe, if you please, we breathe in the very life of God himself. So John says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And Jesus, in our theme verse here at TLCC, said later that he came to give us that life and that it's life in all of its fullness, and as the message says it, real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. So we receive this life when we believe and confess our faith in Jesus. Jesus said that when we believe, we are born again. We receive new life. But that's just the beginning. It's not the end. We are born and we receive new life. But the fact is that we can grow in this life. We can experience more and more of it as we grow in our relationship with Jesus. And as we grow, and this Zoe life animates our bios life. We are no longer just physical beings. Our spirits come alive. We can breathe. Zoe life permeates into and influences our emotions, our health, our relationships, our finances, our career track, our thought life, and more. It influences. This influences everything else in our life. Every part of who we are as created beings can be animated by the presence and reality of the eternal life of God who is in us now. So again, We receive spiritual life when we're born again, but we can grow into this life and experience it more and more. That's what I want for each of us. And we grow in this life through growing in our relationship with Jesus who brought us and who continues to bring us this life. See, we can grow in this thing, all right? 
uh, Peter wrote in his second letter to the church, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Or in other words, grow in knowing Jesus. And when we grow in knowing Jesus, as we grow in our life with God, we discover that it it, it's not just a Sunday morning hour and a half or some spiritual encounter during the week thing. It impacts everything in life. What's going on here impacts everything in life. Paul wrote to the Colossians and said, Live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. It could be said like this. It could be said that as we grow in the knowledge of God, we bear good fruit in every area of our life. In other words, as we grow in knowing Jesus, we see the fruit of this, the positive fruit of this, in every area of our life. Now, having said that, I want to then say that we can learn to grow in relationship with Jesus. We can grow, and the way that I want us over the next seven weeks, if you'll hang in here with me, the way I want to talk about how that we can learn to grow in relationship with Jesus by looking at how Jesus grew in relationship to the Father and was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, this is kind of a mouthful and it's kind of a mindful. All right? And so I'm going to ask you to give me just for a minute for the, the official. Bible teaching kind of deep dive 10 minutes of today's sermon, okay? I want to talk about how that we can, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to get real practical at the end, okay? I'm going to talk about how that we can learn to grow in relationship with Jesus, which means that we receive more and more and more and more and more and more of this Zoe life reality. We can learn to do that by looking at how Jesus grew in relationship to the Father and was empowered by the Holy Spirit. I want to say three things about that before I move on to the practical part of this. To understand how to be like Jesus, we must understand how much Jesus was like us. This is not something that we think about very often, but it's a really important thought if you're willing to think it with me here for a few minutes. Not for the purpose of learning this, but for the purpose of applying it practically. Jesus, when he came to earth, chose not to function as God, though he was God, but as a human being who relied on his relationship to the Father and depended on the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let me be very clear. Jesus Christ was and is fully God and fully man. But when he came to this planet, he decided to willingly place himself in the same position to God the Father that we have the possibility of doing. So this is captured in passages of Scripture like John chapter 1, which tells us, John's introducing Jesus to the world, and he writes, in the beginning was the Word, he's talking about Jesus, the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And then later in the passage, same thought, John writes, the Word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling 
among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, who was very God of very God, entered this planet and willingly became flesh. And when he willingly became flesh, this had tremendous implications for how he was going to live on this planet. I like the writings of John Thompson, a, a, a wonderful and scholarly pastor from Toronto, Canada, who wrote, outside of time and space, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit coexist equally. But when God himself enters time and space in creation, in salvation, the unity of the Trinity never changes, but the persons take on different roles. And so, so there then is described when Jesus comes to the planet something that is, is called kenosis. Now, again, it doesn't matter for, at all if you remember me talking about a concept called kenosis. I'm getting to the practical part, but I, I kind of feel like I want to get through this, and I also know I talk to an audience every week that likes to think a lot. So for, if you don't, sorry. Um, so kenosis is, 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 is a Greek word that describes what happened when, when the Son of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us Kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S, which is a Greek word, is a, is a point of theology among, uh, in, in Christian orthodoxy, which says, which speaks of the renunciation of the divine nature, at least in part. Now there's mystery to this, but this is kind of the classic way of saying this. The renunciation of the divine nature, at least in part, by Jesus in the Incarnation. He did not stop being God, but he willingly emptied himself and decided to not take advantage of his godness. In other words, he decided to play by the same rules as every other human being. Okay? And you see this, for instance, in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul wrote, that we are to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, note this language, something to be used to his advantage. Rather, and here's the Greek word kenosis, which is translated by a phrase in our English language because we don't have one word to describe this inexplicable concept. Here's kenosis, rather he made himself nothing. That's kenosis, translated. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So here Jesus chooses, if you please, to, at least in concept, empty himself of his godness to not take advantage of the divine nature in order to do the things that he was called to do on this planet, which means that Jesus, the man, had to rely on his relationship with the Father and be empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to do the things that he came to do. He decided to play by the same rules we did. He 
decided not to be walking along and just tap into the divine nature and have an unfair advantage. He decided that he would example for us what it's like to be completely reliant on God for everything. He decided to do that to show us how to live. Here's the second point about this. What's my point? The, over, the headline is, we can learn how to grow in relationship with Jesus by looking at how Jesus grew in relationship to the Father and was empowered by the Spirit. So here's the second point. Because Jesus chose to function as a human being, he needed to grow as a person and in his relationship to God. He needed to grow. So here you see the description one of the few that you find of his childhood and young adulthood. Luke chapter 2, verse 40 said, And the child grew. Now this is talking about, you know, he's growing up. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Later in this chapter, And Jesus grew in wisdom and, chapter, and, 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 and stature and in favor with God and man. Notice, please if you would, would you just repeat after me, Jesus grew? Jesus grew. He didn't show up in the manger and was fully developed, either physically or in everything that he needed to be in order to do what he had called to do. He had to grow. The message has it like this. And Jesus matured, growing up in both body and spirit, blessed by both God and people. So he grew in that way, but also as a man, he lived in a dependency on the Father in order to do what he'd been called to do. Look what he said, John chapter 5. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So you see the operation of the Trinity here, and I don't typically get into that, that kind of thing because it's so complex and so mysterious and so beyond our full comprehension. But you see the operation of the Trinity here. Jesus has decided to show up and to function as a man. Though he is God, he's not taking advantage of his godness. He's going to show us what's it like to live as a man in full dependence on the Father. He says, I can't do anything unless the Father tells me, which means that he needed to pray in order to be in relationship with the Father. You say, why did Jesus keep going away and praying? He needed to. Now, on one hand, big concept, you could say he didn't need anything, but he decided to empty himself of the privilege of not needing. He decided to be in a place where he needed. Do you understand? Now, why did he do this? Because he's trying to show us how to live in relationship to the Father and to grow in the same way that he did. By the way, when he announced now he's shown up, he's arrived on the scene, he, he stands there in the, in, the, in the synagogue of his youth in Nazareth and he says, the Spirit, Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news of the poor. So now you see the whole Trinity now operating here. Jesus now doing what he's doing because the Father is telling him to and the Holy Spirit is empowering him. So I like what Charles Kraft wrote 
He said, Jesus laid aside the use of his divinity and worked totally as a human being in the power of the Holy Spirit while he was on earth. Functioning wholly as a human being under the leading of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit, he began to set people free from captivity and so on. Jesus worked in the authority and power given him by the Father, never once using his own divinity while on earth. Which leads me to this third point, which is Jesus grew. Jesus grew by practicing spiritual disciplines, and he practiced spiritual disciplines because he needed to. I have to be frank with you and say, not until last fall in my study break, I started doing some reading about this, have I ever really thought about this exactly this way, and I've never taught this in my life. So if there's a, if there's a little gap here or there, forgive me and, and send me a nice email, all right? But, but the, the, the big point is this, this is where I really wanna get. Jesus practiced spiritual disciplines which helped him to be in relationship with the Father and be empowered by the Holy Spirit because he needed to and because he wanted to show us what we need to do in order to tap fully into his life and grow in it in the more and better way that we talk around about around here all the time. So uh, Dallas Willard, the great uh, the great theologian philosopher wrote, we can become like Christ by doing one thing, following him in the overall style of life he chose for himself. What activities did Jesus practice? Such things as solitude and silence, prayer, simple and sacrificial living, intense study and meditation upon God's words and God's ways and service to others. So again, why did Jesus fast? He needed to. Why did Jesus pray? He needed to. Now, he chose to operate that way. He didn't have to. He was God. He could have taken advantage of his godness. But what he's saying, he's saying, George, I'm going to show you how to live. So this is what I needed to do to grow and know what the Father's saying and be anointed by the Holy Spirit. So he fasted and he prayed. And when he quoted scripture, you know what? From what I understand, from what I understand, he wasn't quoting scripture because he's tapping into the divine nature and pulling out infinite knowledge. He could have done that. He was God, but he chose not to. He quoted scripture because he studied. You understand? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? What does it have to do with anything? Well, I hope to tell you. I'm praying that during these 40 days of Lent that we will focus on Jesus as Jesus focused on the Father and that we will grow in the life and power of the Holy Spirit just as he did. And we can. See, what I've just said should give hope to all of us feeble human beings. Jesus in his humanity lived perfectly. None of us have. He was superior in every way. But nonetheless, he sets the example of what's possible for us. We can get this right so we can be influenced in every area of our life by the life of God. See, and we can expect the power of God in our lives in the same way the man Jesus experienced it. What a statement. <laughs> you don't have to clap. Thank you for the clap. That wasn't for a clap. And it wasn't, that's not an original statement with me. Who, who am I quoting when I say we can expect the power of God in our lives in the same way the man Jesus experienced? Who am I quoting? Jesus, thank you. I didn't come up with that. 
That'd be too outlandish for me to say. It'd be ridiculous. Here's Jesus sitting at the Last Supper. John 14, 10. He's talking to his disciples. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to my Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name. What's the big deal here? He's saying now, things are about to change. I'm going to die the death I have to die on behalf of humanity. I'm going to enter death. I'm going to defeat death. I'm going to ascend to heaven. I'm going to be glorified, sit at the right hand of the Father. I'm going to tap into my divinity, but not only am I going to tap into my divinity, I'm going to give some of it to you if you believe in me, because I'm going to send back who I essentially am through my Holy Spirit, and I'm going to live in you, and as I live in you, you can tap in to the same thing I've been tapping into the last three and a half years, and you're going to be able to do things even better than I did. That was a long run-on sentence, but you get the point. Let me take a breath. I'm exhausting you and exhausting myself at the same time. So let's get to the practical part. I said all of that to say this. We can grow. We can grow by, in the same way that Jesus did, we can grow by connecting our human selves to a power greater than ourselves, and the primary way that happens is through spiritual disciplines. I said all of that to introduce the series for the next seven weeks, where we are going to talk specifically about the practices that Jesus employed in order to tap into his relationship with the Father and be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, when we focus on the person of Jesus, we get all of that, Right? So spiritual disciplines will help us grow in our relationship with Jesus just as they help Jesus grow in relationship to the Father. Now, what is a spiritual discipline? Well, a spiritual discipline is, uh, as most of you have heard me say many times, a means of grace. It's a theological term of art. It's a really wonderful term. It's a means of grace. It's something that God uses that in and of itself is nothing. But if used properly by us, God will use it to do things in our lives that couldn't be done unless we had done the thing that we did. I am not confused. I know that sounded confusing. <laughs> Example. Showing up to worship on a Sunday is a spiritual discipline. You took action. You got up. You showed up. You might have been 15 minutes late, so it's discipline small d. But nonetheless, it's a spiritual discipline. You showed up. Now, the fact that you showed up isn't good in itself in your relationship with God. God does not look at the attendance list, though we may, and say, well, Tony and Cheryl are here. They get points today. That's not how a spiritual discipline works. The way a spiritual disciplines work is you do the thing that needs to be done so you could be in a place where God can do the thing only God can do. But if you're not in the place where God can do it, God won't do it because you didn't do what you needed to do. I don't know what's wrong with me today, but something's <laughs> definitely wrong. You understand what I'm saying? Because you're sitting here, you felt God's presence in a way you wouldn't have if you weren't here. 
Because you're sitting here, you're learning things that are going into you that wouldn't have gone into you, right? If you were out right now even doing some other good thing, out having brunch with your spouse, that'd still be a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that, but you didn't perform the spiritual discipline that you needed to be in a place where God could speak to you and bring transformation that changes your life. See, that's what happens when we pray. That's what happens when we fast. That's what happens when we practice solitude. That's what happens when we practice community. These are classic spiritual disciplines. That's what happens when we worship. That's what happens when we celebrate with others. That's what happens when we give. When we take action, a disciplined action in some way, God uses it to do something that he couldn't otherwise do. But understand, it's not about the discipline itself. It's not like some of you, I'm sure many of you were raised where it's Lent, and because it's Lent, that means I give up something. Why are you giving up? I don't know. My mom did, her mom did, so I do. Well, that's great, but, but if, if it's just about not you know, giving the thing up, the truth is there's a, a spiritual discipline with wrong motivation doesn't bring life, it brings death. It's just a dead thing, it's just a thing. But if on the other hand you're giving something up because you want to now focus on Jesus in some way, that that discipline helps you focus on Jesus, then all of a sudden that practice brings spiritual life where God that is able to do things in you he couldn't do otherwise. Richard Foster, he talks about spiritual disciplines and he talks about the, the, uh, the principle of indirection. The principle of indirection, which is to say, I'll say it this way, that sometimes we focus on this. We focus, so, so let's say, here's an example Foster uses in his wonderful book, Life with God. I think we have this in the Resource Center. If we don't, somebody make a note. Let's get some of those for folks to be able to get. Um, um, he says, let's say somebody says that they know they need to become more humble. Because, right, pride becomes, comes before fall. Pride will mess us up, right? So let's say, let's say somebody says, I need to get more humble. They, they could take a direct approach, which is to say, I need to get humble. I'm going to focus on being humble. I'm going to grab humility. I'm going to do this. I'm going to become more humble. For one thing, it's not very effective. For another thing, when the person who focuses on becoming more humble becomes more humble, then they become proud because they became more humble because it was their activity of direct effort that caused them to be more humble. So look how humble I am. Right? But, <laughs> thank you. You're making me feel very proud. So, but, but instead of grabbing humility, if someone focuses on their relationship with Jesus, and they, they pr pr practice spiritual disciplines. For instance, in order to, to think about humility, they learn, they, they do acts of service. They find a way to serve the poor. They find a way to humble themselves. They find a way to take care of people that, that, that uh, uh, perhaps aren't in their socioeconomic status. They, 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 they're not thinking, I'm going to become humble, I'm going to humble. They're thinking, I want to be a servant. I'm going to serve. I'm going to find ways to serve. Then all of a sudden, the thing that starts happening in here is a work of the Spirit that all of a sudden you think, well, you don't probably ought not ever think this, but someone says to you, you know what? You just seem to be, have a better sense of yourself than you ever have before. I notice, I don't hear, you know, see some of that cockiness that, you know, uh, used to bother me. Whatever, you get the point. It's, it's, so, so, so I want to become more loving. How do you become more loving? 
Do you go to a class on how to become more loving? Well, that'd be a good thing, a fine thing. That's good. But you, that, that's, that's a human approach. But if you want to connect your human approach to eternal power, what you would do then is you focus on your relationship with Jesus until his spirit begins to cultivate love in you. And all of a sudden, you don't know why. You don't know what happened. You just feel more love and you act in ways that are, that are more loving towards other people. See, here's the classic passage on that. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. Again, it's not the fruit of your effort. It's the fact you're breathing. It's the fact you're connected in your relationship with the source of life. It's the fact that you're growing into life in all its fullness. And all of a sudden, you find yourself more loving, more loving and more long-suffering. And you have more self-control. What did you do to get more self-control? Oh, I just grew in my relationship with Jesus. Guys, this is one of the great secrets of life. This isn't original with me. This is my take on it. I'm not saying this is a brilliant sermon. This is a sermon with way too many run-on sentences. <laughs> but this principle, this principle is one of the most important things that I understand about anything. When you focus on the fundamental thing, the important thing, everything else starts to be influenced by this supernatural power. Okay. Let me talk and close our time by talking in real practical terms about a discipline I want to encourage over the next 40 days. It's the discipline of fasting. Don't get worried. I'm not asking anyone to fast for 40 days. But let me talk about this. I'm out of time, and we, we need to do communion. So I'll be quick, okay? So this is the practical part. And over the next seven weeks, by God's grace, we're going to take on a discipline that's about how to take care of this stuff first, okay? So let's talk about fasting. In Scripture, fasting is, quite simply, abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. Typically, you talk about fasting in several different ways throughout Scripture, there's a normal fast, just as just the example of Scripture. A normal fast is where someone abstains from food but not water. And, a nor and normally, in Scripture, most fasts that are talked about are actually periods of 24 hours or less. Now, there are examples of other kind of the famous stories. But that was the normal fast in Scripture. There's also a partial fast. That's where you abstain from some kind of food but not all food. For instance, the, the Daniel fast has become very popular. If you're not familiar with that, you can check it out. There's an example of Daniel in the Old Testament who fasted from certain types of food. Um, there's uh, an absolute fast, which is very rare, but this is where in Scripture there are a couple of examples of people fasting from food and water. Esther did it. Paul did it. 
for three days each. And then there was a supernatural absolute fast Elijah and Moses experienced, subject for another day, but obviously they were supernaturally empowered to practice this absolute fast because you couldn't do it in your own humanity. And then there were public fastings where an entire group would be called together to fast. But most of the time in Scripture, you see fasting happening in private. It's between a person and God. It's not a source of pride. It's not a big announcement. It's just someone fasting unto the Lord, if you please. And then there, there's, there's uh, also in that, there's a regular fast, which is to say that, that it seems in Scripture that people would, and, and throughout church history, that people would set a particular time, a particular day, a particular way where they would regularly make fasting a part of their life. Now, it's also become common today to, for us, when we talk about fasting, not to just talk in terms of food, but also to talk in terms of maybe social media. Someone's going to fast uh, uh, Facebook for 40 days, or someone's going to fast uh, television, or someone, God forbid, talk about a tough fast, somebody's going to fast Netflix for 40 days, or something like that. And that's okay, that's appropriate. Uh, a spiritual discipline you know, there's a long list of classic spiritual disciplines, but really, a spiritual discipline is any discipline effort on your part that helps you focus on Jesus and get to know him more, okay? So if fasting social media is your thing, then so be it. Now, because of the health benefits of fasting, we're talking about fasting from food now, fasting has become very popular. You know that. You read a lot about the health benefits of fasting intermittent fasting. I've tried intermittent fasting quite a bit. Obviously, it doesn't work as well as what all of them say. But, but what I'm talking about now is not fasting for health benefits, even though that can be a secondary thing. It's a good thing. I'm talking about fasting for spiritual benefits. This is where you very deliberately say, this fast is about my relationship with God, and it's not just abstaining from something, it's abstaining from something so I can turn to someone. It's about focusing on our relationship with Jesus. I love uh, Dick Eastman's thought on fruitful fasting in his book, Love on Its Knees. I love the way he alliterates this. This is how I'll close. He said, first of all, we should fast sensibly, which is to say that sometimes people get an in in inclination to fast, and they hear Jesus fasted 40 days or, or whatever, and they go off on some uh, thing that perhaps they need to be more sensible and careful about how they get in the fasting game. Most fasts in Scripture were for 24 hours or less. It was abstaining from food and water. Now, you can fast in any way. You could fast lunch. You could fast. You f everybody can figure out their own thing, but we should fast sensibly. Secondly, we should fast secretly. Even if it's a public fast, our attitude should be a sense of humility. Jesus said, when you fast. Now, notice, he didn't say, if you fast. He said, when you fast. Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If you're going to work and someone's saying, uh, what's wrong with you today? Are you okay? Why are you so grouchy? You seem to be uh, hangry. Is that how people say it? Uh, 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 I notice you haven't combed your hair for two days. Well, yeah. Oh, I'm fasting. 
Well, you're doing it wrong, okay? You get the point. There's an attitude of humility. You don't make a big deal about it. If the spiritual discipline becomes a source of pride, you blew it. It drives us to humility. Uh, Next, we should fast sensitively, which is to say we're doing it as unto the Lord. We're open to hear God's voice. We're reading Scripture. We're spending time in prayer. We take the time, perhaps, we would have eaten, and instead we're you know, closing the door to our office if it's appropriate, and we're having some quiet time, and we're growing in our relationship with Jesus. Finally, or not finally, we should fast systematically. It would be a good thing to set this up as a regular part of our lives, and then we should fast sacrificially. So, for instance, I know this is a big duh, but if you don't like to eat breakfast, and you say, for the next 40 days, I'm going to fast breakfast, you, did, you missed the point. The point is, you should, it, there should be a level of sacrifice to it. And you're, you're showing, you're showing, again, the, the fast in and of itself doesn't impress God. Yet you put yourself in a position where God can work in your life. And so you make sure that anyway, you fast sacrificially. So I am encouraging, I am encouraging as we get ready to receive communion, I am encouraging all of you who will to consider over the next 40 days some kind of meaningful fasting in your life. You understand I'm not saying fast 40 days. You understand we have a very clear understanding here. The only authority I have in your life is that which you choose to give me, right? And so this is why I say things very carefully like this. I am suggesting, I am encouraging you to find a way over the next 40 days to have some kind of regular fasting or a season of fasting or you think about it, you pray about it. Why? Why? Because we're going to focus on the most fundamental thing in life. We're going to focus on our relationship with Jesus until his life causes us to breathe in ways that we've never breathed before. For this moment, my hope for tomorrow, you keep hope alive. You keep hope alive.